Hello, this is Graham Brown, Principal with NextGen Advisors. Welcome to our podcast. Today, I'm joined by my colleagues, Chris Emper, NextGen's Government Affairs Advisor, and Dr. Marty Lustick, a Principal with the Advisors. Good morning, gentlemen, and welcome. Hey, Graham. It's great to be here. Hey, Graham. We've each been working for many years with provider organizations around the United States who provide physical health and primary care services, as well as services for behavioral and mental health needs. On prior podcast episodes and via the NextGen Advisors blog, we've explored the historical differences in how behavioral and physical health have been separated from a payment, regulatory, staffing, and even government's perspective. As a result of this history, many provider groups find themselves operating what may feel like and function like two parallel businesses, each subject to very complex operating needs. Yet over the past decade, there's been a focus and traction on the integration of these two practice areas, and we want to explore that topic today, as well as a recent announcement from Health and Human Services regarding grants to behavioral health provider organizations. So Marty, why don't you start us off by describing what's happened via demonstration projects that uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have initiated. Yeah, so I was actually interested to learn more about this. It started back in 2014 when Congress passed a set of rules requiring demonstration products be developed by CMS to be tested across several states. So they put the initial pilot descriptions and requirements starting in 2014. The first eight states that were part of this pilot, I think, were up and running uh, by the beginning of 2017. And within this is the concept of a certified community-based uh, behavioral health uh, clinic, CCBHC for short. Um, and there's a variety of requirements for those organizations to qualify to be part of them. Those requirements were delineated in, in the legislation in terms of being patient-centered and having a scope of services that met the needs mostly focused on the needs of those with serious mental illness and substance use disorders and also had a particular focus on those issues as it relates to the needs of of, uh, veterans. And uh, so those pilots got started in 2017 with an enhanced payment. And of course, the states, because it was through Medicaid, had some leeway in how they built and organized those pilots. And so talk a little bit about what the results of some of these demonstration projects were, and did that lead CMS to broaden the program, and if so, how? Well, it's interesting because it all happened, it's happened fairly quickly by government standards, is that there really wasn't enough time to see impact on outcomes so much for patients, but clearly the pilots demonstrated significantly improved access to services for those with uh, serious mental illness and substance use disorder. So as a result of that in 2018, Congress actually appropriated significant funding for other states to begin to get planning grants, to begin to scope out how they would build the same capabilities there. And so that by by this past year, um, there were uh, there's now up to 40 states that have over about 340 CCBHCs uh, now established. So went from a pilot to you know being pretty pervasive pretty quickly. Chris, the you know the Health and Human Services has kind of continued on this theme and continuing to invest in this area. 
there's some significant grant opportunities that were announced recently at just poor behavioral health services. Talk a little bit about those grants and what goals and objectives they're meant to achieve. Absolutely. So this actually ties in with the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic and tracing back to last year, the COVID aid laws that were passed specifically allocated funding for several behavioral health programs, as well as for rural communities, community health centers, and other programs that Congress felt could reach the more underserved communities that had been more heavily impacted by the pandemic and some of the secondary effects of you know, the lockdowns and the pandemic as well. Most recently, in the American Rescue Plan Act that was passed and signed into law in March, there was $3.5 billion for behavioral health programs and $3 billion specifically allocated to the two largest block grant programs run by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, another acronym for us to, to learn under the banner of uh, the HHS, Department of Health and Human Services. The two big grant programs, which were each were given $1.5 billion, uh, were the Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment Block Grant Program, similar to as Marty was just talking about, focused on uh, substance abuse disorders and the, the like and providing preventative services for them. And the other program is the Community Mental Health Services Block Grant Program. So each of these programs given $1.5 billion, which is actually initially given to the states. And then from there, the states have pretty broad authority with some federal purse strings attached to it, some rules to make grants to behavioral health providers, non-profit um, agencies and local health departments that run some of these programs. This is actually record funding for these programs. As a comparison, you know, you're looking at a $6 billion annual budget for the entire department, the entire SAMHSA department across all of these behavioral health programs. And there was actually 5.5 billion, 2.5 billion included in a December 2020 um, end of year law for these block grant programs, and then 3 billion in the most recent program. So five and a half billion, almost as much as the annual budget for SAMHSA appropriated through these programs with pretty flexible distribution options for providers. So. Similar to what we talked about in previous podcasts and over the last few months with community health centers, this is a time of record investment from the federal government into behavioral health programs. You know, it's it's really fascinating to see this level of recognition at the federal government level of this area that's really been underfunded and kind of ignored, sitting on the periphery in terms of overall health care. According to the Mental Health America, which is an advocacy, advocacy group promoting mental health as a critical part of overall wellness, Almost one in five Americans, or 19%, experienced a mental illness in 2017 and 2018. And that's before COVID-19 pandemic, which saw a major increase in the use of mental and behavioral health services, increase in suicidal ideation, increase in recreational and drug use. So if you know community health centers and these organizations that have been certified are providing this integrated care, Sounds like they're really bridging a gap between um, services that the population needs in mental health and uh, physical health under one organization. To me, that integrated care model may be appropriate for value-based contracting approaches and alternate payment methods. And Marty, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts on what are some of the opportunities that you've seen these organizations uh, undertake related to value-based contracting? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that 
I mean, to start with, these pilots in the CCBHCs looked at somewhat of a, a case rate that spanned, you know, in general, a kind of a six-month period. So it began to look at the concept of an episode of care in behavioral health and, and provide the lead organization in these uh, CCBHCs with, month, with a monthly set of funds to manage those patients. So from the beginning, I think there was a, an attempt to align the way the payment structured with giving the providers the, the financial tools and the flexibility to figure out how to take a, a sort of global payment, for lack of a better word, and figure out how to most effectively and efficiently use those funds to meet the needs of that individual that they were serving. So I think it was a great place to start. We've already begun to see, I was reading about a, in Baltimore where they've piloted an actually a capitation arrangement for these patients. So to your point, if you have an organization that can take accountability for the overall care, it's worth noting you mentioned you know, the prevalence of mental health disease, but reading a statistic that over two thirds of people with a chronic mental illness have a comorbid physical condition. So the need to have integrated care to meet the needs of these of this population is enormous. So I think we're moving in the right direction and these ideas with case rates and capitation, I think, are gonna make a big difference if we can work out the details. Mm -hmm. Are there any unique challenges you think that providers in this space are facing? Yeah, so I said if we can work out the details and that's kind of yeah. what I was alluding to. Um, <laughs> Even if you look at the way the CCBHC is defined and they're required to have a set of a scope of services and care coordination capabilities that are intended to meet the overall needs of the, the patients they serve. But for example, one of the requirements is that there's an ability to screen for the risk of physical illness and the, and the, and the needs on the physical medicine side of it but it doesn't require a fully integrated system of care that meets both sets of needs. And there's a lot of work to be done in that space. Likewise, it doesn't, for example, require that inpatient psychiatric and substance use services are uh, formally included in the BCCHC. So in order for these organizations to really fully take accountability and take financial risk, they need to have integration with the whole continuum of services that these patients are going to require and to be, if they don't own them, at least influence that care so that they can be accountable for the outcomes and the cost and so on. Yeah. So still operational silos there when we think about it at a community level. Um, Chris, so what, given this, you know, really kind of historic funding um, that's that's in place now and going to be rolled out over the next several months, what would you anticipate uh, the overall impact is going to be for behavioral health providers and maybe a little glass balling about the future outlook? Yeah, great question. Uh, it, it's always interesting after these programs are rolled out and the, the funding has been um, kind of pushed out the door to see what, you know, what happens and what comes next. next I think a, a lot of that and a lot of the impact is to be determined based on how providers, you know, choose to use the funds, whether they're used in a, for lack of a better word, sustainable fashion, 
um, to build some of the capacity they need to participate in some of these advanced risk-based models that uh, Dr. Marty was talking about. And, you know, just in, in general, where you look at behavioral health, and right now these programs should be viewed as incentive programs, similar to what we saw maybe 10 years ago for the, the broader healthcare community with meaningful use and PQRS and different state demonstration programs that were trying to play around with primary care models and PCMH and medical homes and trying to build the capacity and provide some financial resources for practices to build the capacity they might need to enter into these advanced risk-based models that can provide you know, higher quality, lower cost care. I think that's where the behavioral health world is right now from the federal government's perspective. And with that, there's gonna be a little bit of leeway to start, but I think the quicker that the provider community can find a way to appropriately measure and demonstrate back to the government the success of these programs and of these investments, they'll have a big part to play in shaping that future. And I think one of the exciting things about the behavioral health space, it is a unique space in that, as Dr. Marty mentioned, there are a lot of cost dollars in healthcare, as you consider these value-based care models that are associated with the patients who are in this space. So I think the providers have a unique ability to shape the future of these models with commercial payers, with the government, and especially in the states with the state governments and the Medicaid agencies where a lot of these patients are allocated towards. It will be really interesting to watch because to your point, there could be, you know, really 50 different models of innovation that occur at a state level, and there could be many different approaches tested. Marty, what do you anticipate? Um, a thought that comes to mind is we think about Chris referencing the transformation in primary care over the past decade. Should behavioral health organizations start thinking about accountable care organizations and how they look at that full continuum of care? Uh, and managing it in a different way. Do you anticipate that or what else might you foresee? I hope for that. I do think that the CCBHC model sort of uh, represents a potentially really good foundation for building the equivalent of a clinically integrated network that it focuses on behavioral health needs. I would pile on Chris's comment, use of the word sustainability. I think if the organizations that are, you know, getting this extra funding, use the money strategically to position themselves in the long run to be able to improve the value and the outcome of care for the population they serve. The good thing is there's enormous amounts of excess spending because of the lack of infrastructure to support that population historically. So if they can use the money strategically, there's a huge opportunity to make this a cost-effective, long-term, sustainable solution. If they, if they use the money to dig themselves out of the holes that they've been in because they've been so underfunded and they don't take a strategic approach, this could just be a flash-in-the-pan kind of thing that we're seeing right now. So I think it's going to be really important both to support organizations that are trying to move forward in this space to help them take a strategic approach and to measure and track the outcomes so that as we see where there are successes, we work on replicating and scaling those. Well, excellent insights and great, uh, great expertise from each of you to inform this conversation. Thank you very much for joining uh, Chris Emper and Marty Lustig and to our listeners as well for tuning in. For more episodes from the Next Gen Advisors, hit the subscribe button. 
This is Graham Brown with NextGen Healthcare. Thanks for listening and have a great day.